your Bibles, please open them up to Amos chapter 8. And we're going to start with verse 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun, and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. May God bless the reading of his word. We're in Amos, um, and we've kind, of, we've kind of discussed this a lot, how there's a lot of judgment in Amos. Um, and we've continued to see it for eight chapters worth. Now, I can give you all a big sigh of relief. I know next chapter, there's going to be some hope finally. <laughs> so we do have to get through one more week, I would say, of, of judgment before we start to get into some promises and some knowledge that God will redeem these people, even of their, um, their wickedness. So let's go ahead, though, and continue with this one. Verse 9 and 10. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Now the Lord speaks through Amos to condemn the people of Israel further. We notice that he begins with, on that day. When this phrase is used, it reflects a time which is to come. It is not stated the exact moment of the coming of the judgment. Um, All we can be sure is that it will happen sometime in the future. Now a common thread in prophetic statements, we see how nature itself is used as a processional of judgment. God will cause the world to go dark. Even though it is high noon, the moment when the sun should be at its zenith, God causes it to go dark on the earth. This further reminds us of the great power of God who is truly sovereign. He's sovereign over all of the universe. Now when this occurs, God will turn their feasts into mourning and their songs into lamentation. This is the real focus for the coming judgment. The people will be unable to rejoice, for the judgment will be so great. Whereas feasts and songs were times of peace and generally joyful, on that day they will be transformed by the destruction of the judgment of God on them. The people themselves, they'll wear sackcloth and they'll have baldness. Sackcloth is a black and it's uncomfortable to wear and was often used in ancient and even modern times as a way to symbolize sorrow or grief. Likewise, to shave off one's head expresses that same sentiment, though more often it's used as a way of empathy for those who may be going through something like lost loved ones. The mourning will be so great that it will be as the mourning for an only son, 
As we've seen from going through the book of Ruth, progeny, children, they were an important part of ancient cultures, even as today. It was by one's children, though, in that time that individuals would be taken care of in old age. And it was through having children that there was hope for immortal status. As long as the family line continued, then one's name would continue. To lose an only son would be devastating for a family, as it would mean that the progeny, the future, would be lost. Finally, the judgment recognizes that it will end as a bitter day. We've all experienced some bitter days in our lives, when it seems as though there is no hope to be found. Such is the day when it comes for those in ancient Israel. The judgment will be so severe that there will be a lack of hope even for a future. Now verses 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. The focus now shifts to another form of punishment by God. And again, we see a future aspect to the prophecy when Amos says, um, the days are coming. In this, we notice it is not just one day in particular, which is the focus, but a number of days, a period of time which the judgment takes place. We see this clearly as we continue. It begins with a metaphor about famine. Famine is a curse type for disobedience and faithlessness in the law. In this case, we have seen such judgment to take place. However, there is a twist. Instead of it being a famine of bread or of water, it is a famine for being able to hear the word of the Lord. In other words, God is going to silence his prophets from speaking to the people for a time. It seems as though it is not only the prophets, however, but also the law itself. One can imagine this understanding to mean that the law will not be perceived rightly. And because of that, it will be as though a famine has come from God himself. If one couples this with the lack of prophets, then that famine would be great indeed. We are told that the people will wander from sea to sea. And that represents the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, which would be south and west. And from north to east, never being able to hear or find the word of the Lord. They will continue to search for it, but it will not be found. This is ultimately a sorrowful thing for the people. For as the law states, it is by the word of the Lord which gives nourishment and even life. This judgment then is perhaps one of the most severe judgments God can give to a people. Verses 13 and 14. In that day the lovely virgins and young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. The judgment continues, this time with a literal famine which comes over the land. Again, we see the motif of in that day. So at a future time, this judgment will take place. The lovely virgins and the young men, they represent those who have the strength of youth. Even though they are strong, even they will faint from thirst. Thus, what hope is there for the rest of society when even the strong and the young are unable to rise up? Indeed, there is not much hope at all. The judgment then turns to the religious society itself. 
focusing on those who are apostates by nature. We can sense the severity of this by those who swear by the guilt of Samaria. In other words, the oaths which they now speak show what it is that Samaria and all of Israel are really guilty of, which is idolatrous and pagan worship. And yet they continue to abide by such oaths and such an unorthodox religious system. Likewise, the guilt of Samaria likely represents Bethel, a place of false religious worship which had Asherah poles along with other pagan worships. And Asherah poles were used by worshiping at the poles. Um, It was kind of like an idol for the god Asherah. Amos focuses then on two different oaths which were presumably often sworn by the people during the time. And each one, along with the swearing of the guilt of of Samaria, show what it is that the people are guilty of. The first is, as your God lives, O Dan. Dan was a place set aside by Jeroboam I, where he had built a golden calf for the people to worship, similar to Bethel. Thus, the people were worshiping a golden calf. They were worshiping an idol. The second is, as the way of Beersheba lives, or as the power of Beersheba lives. Beersheba was also a cultic site, which seemed to have some synchronized Yahweh worship. So in other words, they were likely worshiping Yahweh at Beersheba in the same breath as worshiping Baal. Same breath. To swear by a god was to commit oneself to that god. This is why oaths were so important during ancient Near Eastern times. If one were to swear by the god, then that god would enact judgment on the person for their failure to maintain the oath. We see this often in the Old Testament when they say, May the Lord deal with me, may it be ever so severely, if I don't do this or if this happens. Thus, we see the ultimate hypocrisy with the people. They were deeply religious individuals, worshipping at these sites, practicing the worship rituals of some of the law, while at the same time ignoring the basic commandments of the law to have no God above Yahweh and to have no graven images. As such, the people will experience the great judgment which they deserve. They have broken the commandments they swore to uphold. They worshipped other gods and worshipped in ways which the law forbade. As such... For their covenantal unfaithfulness, they will experience judgment. And as the Lord says, they shall fall never to rise again. So the main point of these verses, they're to show the judgment of God. Not only do we see a reflection of the judgments to occur, we also see why the people are being judged. Not only have they failed to maintain the law when it comes to society in general, as we've seen repeatedly throughout Amos, they have also failed to follow their covenantal promise to abide by the law through pagan worship. The Decalogue, then, the Ten Commandments, it means very little to these people. And as such, they will face judgment for their failure to remain in covenant with God. Now, some applications. Um, In our modern age, there are few discussions more important than the ones about truth. As we hear the media, all the false news stories, look at that reference, 
And even as we consider all the different beliefs, both within and without Christianity, the search for truth and to grasp truth has become very important. And when we read a text today from Amos, I can't help but think of the reality of that. I think about it because of the way these individuals, they were so religious and yet so very wrong. How they could blaspheme God by treating him as though he was like any other God. How they could so easily worship the God of all along with other gods. How they could so easily live a lifestyle so separate from the lifestyle which God had called them to while at the same time praising God in the temple. How is it that they can be so hypocritical? The answer could range in many different directions. We could say that it has to do with their own pride, which certainly it does. We could say it has to do with their sin, it certainly does. We could also say that it has to do with their leaders, or lack thereof, which it certainly does. However, there is another issue And that is that they simply do not care for truth. If they cared for truth, then they would recognize they were living and believing that which was completely false. If God is truth, and what he proclaims is true, and his law is true, then to live and believe things different from what God has ordained would be false. To be outside of truth. Thus that is what we find with this society in ancient Israel. They have no real care for finding truth, nor do they care if they are in the truth, but are willing to live and syncretize their belief into whatever belief and lifestyle situation best suits them. Now what is fascinating is that we have a society which does this very same thing. In fact, it is very like humanity in general to act in such a way. To take what is truth and then to twist it or add to it. So that truth isn't truth anymore. And whatever semblance of truth they once had fades to dust. We see it happen in our society all the time and in many different ways. And again, this makes sense. This was the first lesson taught to us by the devil in the Garden of Eden. When he questioned the word of God. The word of truth itself. Did he say, you shall truly die? And we've been twisting it ever since. Consider when it comes to marriage. Marriage is a wonderful thing. It should be celebrated. Now, however, marriage itself is undone. The understanding of marriage that is fundamentally between a man and a woman is no more in our society. So marriage, which society would in some respect consider good, is twisted so that what it once was in truth is no longer true. We see this not only in marriage, but also when it comes to our Christian faith. Recently, a fairly mainstream Christian denominations leader went to an interfaith discussion. There he prayed to the God who brought them all together. He synchronized God so that he was... The other God, faith's God. So the Christian God looks no more different than the Hindu gods. Or the New Age Earth Spirit, which the man prayed in. And this was a Christian from a mainstream denomination saying this, praying this. But it isn't just with certain denominations. 
We also see it with many people when it comes to their faith and practice. There are many who have gone through the steps of the church, so to speak. They believe they are saved, yet they are believing things which are completely contrary to the Christian faith. Thus, they take elements of the Christian faith and yet never allow it to transform them. They take what is considered truth and then twist it to their own benefit. We see how the faith gave them something they were looking for. But the truth is, it was a selfish seeking. They weren't looking for truth. They were looking for something which would give them peace. Give them some gratification. And once that they had received, they left. Clinging only to what they had really wanted to begin with. Which was not change, but something to give them enough peace to continue on as they had before. In fact, one of the biggest ways this has impacted Christianity is in the prosperity gospel, which permeates our TV evangelists. The belief that God wants to make you healthy and wealthy and that he will do so if you pray for it to occur and simply believe. This is syncretism, a combination of the Christian faith, the Christian religion, with the religion of mammon, of the world. Of wealth, which seeks profit and gains above all. Thus, by throwing the religious term, let's say God, into the mix, those who follow the prosperity gospel believe that they are getting two fulfillments at once. The first is being right with God, and the second is everything that they want on earth. I guess the question we want to ask is are such individuals really all that different from those in ancient Israel? I think we could say no. They continue to live the way they want. They believe what they want. Even adding different contradictory beliefs together. Just like those in ancient Israel. In fact, one could say that they are very similar people indeed. And that is where our warning comes into play. We must make sure that we are not taking only what we want from the Bible. Or from the Christian faith in general while not accepting or acknowledging all of it. This isn't just for those who no longer attend church. We know that in ancient Israel, they were very religious individuals. It is not enough to be religious. God doesn't call us to simply do some things and then all is well. Instead, God calls us to himself in all. To give all to himself for his glory and for our benefit. In other words, we cannot be like those who seek to do only what they want to do and who are willing to disregard truth to do it. We cannot hold to certain beliefs or lifestyles which are foreign to the Christian faith while at the same time claiming to be in that faith. It would be a strange thing for someone to be both an unrepentant thief and a Christian. In fact, such a person cannot be both, according to the scriptures. One cannot live a life of stealing and theft without remorse, without repentance, and then at the same time believe and say that they are in Christ and they live for Christ. That does not mean it can never mean that we are perfect in our faith or in our lives. We all struggle. We all have moments of doubt, confusion, and especially failure. However, There is a difference between the individual who lives in sin without repentance or remorse and the poor soul who struggles against sin, who recognizes sin and seeks God to take away the sin in their life. So what is the point? 
The point is to not fall sway to untruth. That has been the warning Amos has given us throughout all of his prophecies. There is truth. It can be grasped. And we must make sure that we are seeking the truth rather than that which is false. We must make sure that we are seeking God and not a false image of who God is made up in our minds. We can know the difference and we know the truth through the scriptures which God is closer to our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And it is He who we must follow to know the truth of God. The second point that kind of stems from that is a great judgment. Today in Amos, we see an interesting and important judgment which occurs with the people. And that is when God silences His word. While it is true that the law may be in view here, another important point is that it also deals with prophets. Previously in Amos, we saw how Amaziah attempted to silence Amos, and this was wrong. However, when God silences the prophets, it is not the definition of wrong, it is the definition of judgment. Ultimately, this is going to be a brief history lesson, just to warn you. Ultimately, this prophecy was fulfilled in three ways. The first way was in 722, when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. All those prophecies about Israel being destroyed, yeah, it's going to happen in 722. When that occurred, there was no northern kingdom anymore, and the law, nor the prophets, could be found in the land. The second happened in 586, when the Babylonian exile occurred. And the third and most definitive way it was fulfilled was in 450. That is the estimated date as to when Malachi, a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, the final prophet in the Old Testament, when his ministry ceased. After that, there is no mention of any prophets. None. Now consider something further. In between Nehemiah, Ezra, and Malachi, and the New Testament, so the Old Testament when it ends and the New Testament, is what is called the intertestamental period. Nehemiah, Ezra, and Malachi are all under the influence of the Persian Empire in the Old Testament. Now the Persians were in control of the land, even though the Jewish people still existed as Jews, until about 331. After that, Alexander the Great, we all know him, right? Alexander, Greek. Um, He came through, which led to the Hellenistic Greek control, until about 164. Finally, in 164, the Hasmonean dynasty began with the Maccabees. Specifically, with Judas Maccabee, their dynasty lasted until 63, and then from then until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Romans were in control. And we all know about the Romans. Now, throughout all this time, the Jewish people had some autonomy, though it had been its greatest with the Maccabees. All right, history lesson is over. All of you are wondering, why am I bringing this up? Um, What does this have to do with anything? (laughs) Well, it has to do with the fact that from, again, approximately 450 until John the Baptist, there were no prophets in the land at all. The writings of the intertestamental period, they're called apocryphal books. And while they're very interesting, none of them, were written by prophets, and none of them are considered authoritative. 
However, a few of those apocryphal books are historical, such as the book of the Maccabees. I want you to consider this passage from one of those books, from the Maccabees. First Maccabee, it comes from chapter 4. Then Judas and his brothers said, See, our enemies are crushed. Let us go up to cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. So all the army assembled and went up to Mount Zion. There they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, and the gates burned. In the courts they saw bushes sprung up as in a thicket or as one of the mountains. They also saw the chambers of the priests in ruins. Then they tore their clothes and mourned with great lamentation. They sprinkled themselves with ashes and they fell down on the ground. And when the signal was given with the trumpets, they cried out to heaven. Then Judas detailed men to fight against those in the citadel until he had cleansed the sanctuary. He chose blameless priests devoted to the law and they cleansed the sanctuary and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. They deliberated what to do about the altar of burnt offering, which had been profaned. And they thought it best to tear it down, so that it would not be a lasting shame to them that the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on a temple hill until a prophet should come to tell them what to do with them. That last sentence is what hits the hardest. The people had no idea what to do with these defiled stones. Why? Because there was no prophet. There was no one who could tell them the word of the Lord on the matter. They had no idea what to do in that circumstance, and it was because they simply buried the stones in the end because of it. In this we see the prophecy in Amos, which we saw today, fulfilled. And it is something to consider that one of the most powerful and greatest judgments to befall a people is when God silences his prophets. Recently, this came up with our congregation in a few different ways. We have considered what it means for churches to have closed their doors. In some sense, people would argue that such closings are judgments from God. The congregation who closed their doors, they they closed themselves off too much. They were too hard-hearted. They didn't understand the culture of the world. They simply weren't listening to the younger generation. And because of all these things, God closed the ministry. Now, it may be true that God ends the ministry because it ceases to be pleasing to Him. It is possible that ministries close because they are no longer glorifying to God. However, such ministries are not what we are considering today. Instead, we are focusing on those ministries who remained faithful, who proclaimed the gospel, and who were faithful to the scriptures. What would cause such ministries to cease? I would argue that in such instances, when such ministries close, it is God silencing prophets. And when God silences such prophets, it is not the prophet who is being judged but the society around the prophet who no longer receives the word of the Lord. As we remember, prophecy does not only relate to being able to predict the future. In fact, we are prophetic in our societies when we proclaim the will of God according to the scriptures and live out the faith according to the scriptures. In this way, we show the world the will of God in all areas of life. And in this way, we continue to be prophetic to the world around us. 
When then such ministries close who have members who are faithful in such ways, then we can be sure that the society, the small towns, the big cities have lost a prophetic voice. In this way, the people begin to lose hearing the word of the Lord. And in this is a great judgment because as we were told in Deuteronomy and quoted by Christ, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Thus, without the word of the Lord, there can be no life. Because of this, it naturally leads to further judgment. Because if the society has no prophets, then it has no one informing them of the word of the Lord, which brings life. Which if there is no life, then there is only death. And ultimately, the people are left to do as they please. In Romans 1, we find this to be another form of judgment on the people. Consider what we read in Romans. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We notice, God gives them up to such things. He allows them to do such things. In this way, it is a judgment against the people for them to get exactly what they want. No prophets to condemn or to speak what God's will is in the society. No guilt, nothing. They are free to do as they please, and in this way they are judged. For God takes away that which they desperately need, which is his word. And since this is taken away, there is no life, and the people live freely in their sin, which only leads to death. Some may be already connecting the dots. Our society is in such a state. It seems when immorality is seen as acceptable to many, just as it was in Amos' day. Likewise, we see many churches closing their doors, prophetic voices silenced by God. So the question is, what should we do in such a society? Some would say that we should just let it be, let the judgment come. Let's not say anything. I would say, speaking individually, that we can still intercede, though, on behalf of the society. As it is, there are still churches who are faithful. There are still those who do speak prophetically to the world, society around us. We can continue to be such individuals within the society, continue to preach, to proclaim the gospel to the society, living according to the word, being prophetic in our callings. As such, we have a responsibility not to be lax. We must each and every one continue until our dying breath. If the society is going to hell, then we should be sure that we have done all that we can in that society, continue being faithful to our God, if not for the society itself, then because our God is worthy of our faithfulness, even if we are completely rejected by the world. 
Likewise, giving up and lying down is simply not in our blood, so to speak, as Christians. For in Christ, we have our ultimate example of one who did not simply lie down, but who continued on in faithfulness, even though he was rejected completely. Christ, though rejected, continued in obedience to his Father, and we must do the same. For as long as there are Christians who follow Christ, there are prophets in a society. In this way we have hope, knowing that the door has not shut completely against our own society. We have further hope that the prophetic silence for the people of Israel was one which was but for our time, not forever. Though the prophets ceased for hundreds of years, eventually there came to be more prophets again. John the Baptist and the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ, followed by his very followers. This, then, is a call for two things. The first is wisdom. For our congregation, like every other congregation, must be wise in knowing where God is leading us together, whether that is to be silenced or to continue in ministry. In that, we remember that it is not any of us who decides this. God decides it. I'm going to take a moment, Betsy, just so you know. Hold on. Um, And I know that that's a hard thing to hear. I think it's a hard thing for any ministry to have to hear and to consider and say, okay, wisdom-wise, what are we looking at? But I want you to consider something. First, again, it is God's decision, not ours. Second of all, it has nothing to do with numbers. God can continue on with a ministry of two people for 50 years with just two people. He can do it with 10 people. And then he could close the door of a congregation of 100,000. He can do that. So it's just something to consider. That is what God's decision is. It's not ours. Now this then leads to the second, and that is a call to faithfulness, regardless even if the society around us begins to crumble. Even if that society is being judged, let us continue pressing forward against the darkness, being a light even in the darkest places. Even Each of us individually has callings in which we can be light to be prophetic in these areas of our lives, to show the world the will of our God, our Heavenly Father exactly where He has placed us, as parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, teachers, spouses, businessmen, businesswomen, all of the above. If prophetic voices do continue to cease, so be it. But let it not happen because we are faithless, But let us remain ever steadfast in our faith, trusting in our God who guides us ever onward into his unending love and glory. It's for him that we do all of this. Now in all of this we consider the great gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through him that we continue to hear the prophetic call to follow our God. And it is through him that we are able to, being transformed in our hearts, seek after him in peace and in love. It is through him we have fulfilled our prophetic call to the world, and it is through him that the judgment we deserve is passed over us by his grace. The gospel begins with our origins. God created all things by the power of his word. He is the first cause of all things. He is the only one without a cause, because he has no beginning, for he always was and always is and always will be. All of the cosmos, however, does have a beginning, and because of that, a cause which is God himself. Last of all, the cosmos to be created was humanity, whom God made in his image. Because God is a God of love, 
reason, knows, can be known, has personhood and shows Hesed, his loving kindness, we can and we do as well. It is in this that we find dignity, worth, and sanctity to all human life. But like God, we are able to choose. We could either choose to follow God in obedience and into life, or we could choose to follow sin and disobedience and death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. And because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world, they're broken. We continue to accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. And because of that, we are worthy of condemnation and judgment. God did not leave us in this state of sorrow and hopelessness and despair forever. Instead, he sent his light and gave us his word in our darkness, and that is Jesus Christ his only begotten Son. Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is by him we are justified before our holy and righteous God. It is through his blood we are cleansed from our sin. It is in his victory that we find our own victory in life and over death. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance from sin. We are to turn away from sin and turn toward God. We are to live lifestyles that are congruent with the scriptures, with Christ as revealed by the scriptures, in step with the Holy Spirit in love. We are to seek to live for the glory of God above all, and in this way we bear witness to the power of God in us for our salvation by how we live. The second is faith in Christ, to recognize our total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we are able to do which saves us from our sins. It is what Christ has done. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, that you and I are saved. For those who remain in disobedience, there is only condemnation. None can stand before God with their own deeds in hand, for even their best deeds are as filthy rags before our holy and righteous God. Therefore, to stand before God without any atonement for sin is to stand in judgment for the moral guilt which of sin which we all have apart from Christ. However, there's hope. Because those who are obedient, there is no longer condemnation. Instead, they receive the love reserved only for the Son of God. They enter into the joy of knowing God as their Father in heaven. They are able to have victory over sin in this life and victory over death in the next. Not because of what they do, but because of what Christ has done. In the end, they become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom of peace with their God forever. Now, I know all this might sound a little scary, I know that when we consider our societies and we consider the state of so many congregations, it can become very sorrowful. Especially, again, the society itself. We all see it. We all see the society which we live. The darkness. But let us remember to be faithful in our prayer that the Lord's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's His will that we're seeking. It's His grace and His mercy and His love. In His love, it continues on forever. So what do we have to fear? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Amen. Let us go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your graces, for Your mercies, for Your loving kindness. We thank You for the great love that You display through Your Son, Jesus Christ, which You give to us so freely. And Lord, it is with this that we cling. 
It's with this that we take each step. It's with this that we continue to try, continue to work at, continue to desire to be prophetic to the society around us, which is in so much darkness. And so, Lord, it is with this that we pray that you would intercede, that you would pause your judgment, that churches would thrive, that congregations which are faithful will be built up, and that this society would change by the gospel itself. For we know that the gospel can give life to death. We know that it can change worlds. And we know that through your grace we can stand. And it's on your grace that we do. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we